lives of worship throughout the course of the year to begin to engage in that. And, and some of you are following along. I, I see it actually in, on, on my little app that some of you are following along in our, uh, our shared sort of Bible study and devotional that we're following in, uh, on uh, Bible.com or if some of you are using the app. Uh, the Bible app. So it's just an opportunity for us to all be sort of tracking together and connecting together. And throughout the next uh, several weeks around Lent, we'll also be uh, tracking through the, just through the Bible story of Jesus on his road to uh, Jerusalem, on his road to the cross. Now, uh, that story is, is an amazing story. Jesus obviously was born. He walked on the earth and talked and, and met with people and healed people and, and did so many amazing things. But there was this sort of pivotal moment in his journey uh, when Peter came to him and said, hey, I figured out who you are, Jesus. Uh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Just a connection thing there. Check that out. Okay. Um, and uh, and um, in that moment, uh, Jesus uh, turned and shifted and began to shift his focus into preparing his disciples for what it meant to see him. Uh, be be on the cross. He began to prepare them. There's a, a number of stories uh, through the scriptures following from uh, book of Matthew chapter 16. Uh, we have the transfiguration. Uh, we have um, uh, the, the, the story of the greatest in the kingdom. We have Jesus comforting his disciples. We have the teaching on the Holy Spirit. We have Palm Sunday, all these preparations uh, for the Holy Spirit to come. But where we're going to chat and where we're going to camp uh, right now is really around this idea of uh, Jesus on that journey. Uh, if you look at this image on the screen, um, it's it's a it's a piece of Northern Ontario. It's a it's a great big chunk of Northern Ontario. Uh, if you look at it, um, there are 387 kilometers from east to west, 413 kilometers from north to south. That makes up 283,000 square kilometers, 70,000 acres, uh, 47,000, just statistically based on the number of trees, sort of 47 billion trees in that space, this massive piece of land where there are no roads and there are no through rivers, and there are statistically, we think anyway, somewhere in the neighborhood of 78,000 bears. Uh, it's this massive, massive tract of land in, in Ontario where there's nothing there. And, and for many of us on our journey, uh, on the journey of life, uh, maybe those of us who are, who are believers in Christ, we might have more guideposts to go through. But for most of the people that we know and love in our culture, uh, they're in that sort of a space uh, with no roads, no direction, no way to navigate. Uh, they're kind of just in this giant space uh, right there. Uh, what we call it, uh, looking at it sort of sociologically, is this post-postmodern world. Um, it's uh, another term for it is digimodern. That there's a world in which we live uh, that is so diverse, that's so spread out. There are so many ideas at play in this world and so much access to media and information that everything begins to look the same and navigation is nearly impossible. A man named uh, Alan Kirby said this, said the triteness and spiritual shallowness resulting from this instantaneous, direct, and superficial participation in culture that's made possible by internet, mobile phones, and, and all of this. It's marked by ignorance, fanaticism, and anxiety, and it's said to produce a lost and trance-like state in those who are participating in it. That's the culture that we live in. Uh, people are increasingly lost. They're increasingly sort of caught in a trance without a sense of direction. 
uh, the, uh, what this author says, he describes it as almost a silent autism where there's just no ability to process the broad spectrum of, of input that comes our ways. And, and as, as we look at navigating in that, in that world, uh, we, we realize how do we find our way? How do we find our direction? How do we find our moorings in that space? Uh, as Jesus drew closer to the moment of his, of his death, he began to prepare his disciples for that. So just imagine yourself in that space. Imagine that you are in that massive tract of land in, in northern Ontario, and you have your little backpack, and you're with a couple of your friends, but you don't have a GPS, and you don't have a compass, and it's kind of cloudy. You can't really see the sun, but, but you and your friends are just there, and you're, you're trying to navigate this space. All you have is trees. Every tree is different, and tree after tree after tree, millions of trees around you, and bears may be ready to jump out of the woods and eat you, and you're just living in this place. And, and if you understand that sort of feeling or, or the, the sort of fear that that might be, if you, if you imagine yourself actually in that circumstance... Uh, what, what you'll find is a feeling that most people in our culture actually feel. They actually feel lost. They actually feel overwhelmed by information. They actually feel like they're looking for something to anchor them, something to give them clarity, something to give them a sense of direction. And, and that's no different, really, than the ancient world. Uh, when, when Jesus was walking and, and talking on the earth, uh, Rome was uh, occupying the promised land. There was widespread idolatry uh, mixed in with Judaism. Uh, there was just a, an incredible vastness of, of ideas and philosophies and thoughts uh, that were, were flowing around there. And Jesus was coming into that world and wanting to offer uh, himself as something that is clear, something that is an anchor, something that is solid. We talked about that last week as a, as a foundation. Let's just read this sort of moment where uh, Jesus sort of encountered some of this thinking uh, in, in the life of uh, Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verses uh, 13 to 19. Let's just read this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Again, we see even a diversity of opinion about who Jesus might be. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. I just want to unpack that a little bit. First, first thing we want to look at when we look at this passage is just look at the context. Where... Jesus when he said it. It says right here in the text he was uh, in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, I maybe should have put a map up on the screen, but it's up north in the, in the state of Israel in an area called Dan that was formerly the land of the, the tribe Dan up in the north. And Caesarea Philippi was a city uh, that had been built by Herod around a, a pagan temple, around a, a pagan place of worship. Uh, a place that for years and years and years had been a place of um, 
of idolatry. Originally, uh, the worship of Moloch happened in that place, and originally the worship of Baal happened in that place. And now it was a place that uh, some buildings had been built, some foundations had been laid. These had been laid by Herod the Great, who claimed to be uh, a Jewish believer, but, but actually was building... Uh, on behalf of the Romans building temples and funding the building of temples and in this case a temple for the god of Pan and what that area was known as was known as the gates of hell it was known as the gates of hell there was a great big cliff face and there was a grotto uh, in, the, in the cliff face where there was a cave and what the uh, pagans believed was that when you uh, came to that space every spring that is where uh, the spirits, that is where uh, the fertility gods, that is where Pan would come out in the spring to make all of the crops grow, and in the fall he would go back in there. It was a gateway to the underworld, a gateway to Sheol, a great gateway to, to Hades, and that's what that place was. And that's where Jesus was sitting as he was teaching this. Uh, just something to note about that and something to think about is, why did Jesus go to that place? Why did he go to such a pagan broken place and 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 we look at why he did that and realize that he still had compassion for those people he had a heart for those people and we recognize as we grapple with this passage that we have to have a heart and a call uh, to people who were in dark and difficult and dangerous and ugly places that where Jesus went uh, we're called to go of course in the safety of community and and in the safety of our relationship with Jesus but uh, he went on mission to the lowest and deepest and darkest places and that's the place places that we're often called to go and so it says this continuing on in the text when jesus came to the region of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say the son of man is and they replied some say john the baptist others elijah still others jeremiah or one of the prophets so jesus comes to peter they're in this incredibly pagan place there's people probably milling all around there's people taking sacrifices uh, probably into that place uh, it was close to the spring at that time, right? Because we're just about to see uh, Jesus go on uh, into the, the whole Passover and all of that kind of deal. Uh, I mean, it was a very, very brutal place. Human sacrifice was happening there, uh, the whole deal. They used to actually go and, and have sex with goats because Pan was the god of, I mean, just a brutal, brutal place, brutal pla practice. Because Pan was this god who had the, the bottom of a of a goat and the, and the body of a man. Like, it was just a brutal brutal place and and so in this middle of this crazy cult this crazy diverse pagan worship and environment uh, Jesus says who do people say I am and we're called to sort of answer that question to look around at the culture and see who people see that that God is and we look at this sort of story even Jeremiah he was a prophet from the north so is this, as Peter sort of guessing, well, maybe Jeremiah, he's sharing that little bit about Jeremiah. People are saying Jeremiah. It's, well, because Jesus is up in the, the north. He's up in that place where uh, Jeremiah spoke out against the very worship of Baal that was happening on that ground uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And, uh, and we realized that they were seeing Jesus as a prophet, like he's a prophet. And that's something in us that, that, that we want Jesus to be that, don't we? Don't you want Jesus to speak to the evil in our culture? Don't you want Jesus to speak to the brokenness in our culture? Don't you want him to speak uh, into uh, injustice and speak into uh, idolatry and speak into 
the issues that trouble us as people. Of course, that's who Jesus is, and, and in part, that's who we're supposed to be. Uh, following Jesus is part of the church. That's a part of who we are, uh, a prophetic voice to our culture, a prophetic voice to uh, the world around us. That's a piece of who we are. But Jesus takes the question a little bit deeper. He takes the question uh, down to a more personal level in, in Peter's life, and, and he says this. He says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Uh, your life is going to pivot on this question, Peter. Uh, this is the question around uh, which Salome's word around control pivoted. Uh, do you recognize, do you recognize who I am? You have to grapple with this issue. You have to come to this place of, of saying, is, is he God? Is he Lord? Is he creator of the universe? Or is he not? He's not asking what your grandma thinks. He's not asking what your granddad thinks. Jesus isn't asking what your mom and pop think or your cousins think or your brothers and sisters think about who Jesus is. He, he, he casts away all of that. He just blows all of that aside and he refines the question to ask us who do you think I am who do you think I am and he he's face to face with Jesus in this place this this isn't just a question that Peter has to ask answer someday you know, many of us, we, we're, we're on a journey, we've been on a journey of, of wrestling with, can Jesus really be Lord in my life? And for some of you, you might be asking that question for the first time. Some of you might be asking that question in areas of your life as believers who are learning to follow Jesus, learning to give over uh, control and leadership to him. Uh, but is he Lord? Is he king? Is he more than just a prophet? Is he asking you a question that you actually have to grapple with and answer now. Face to face. Heart to heart. Jesus is in this room with some of us asking us face to face and heart to heart. Who do you think I am? Who am I to you? Who am I to you personally? What does my existence mean to who you are as a person? How does who I am change you? And Jesus asks that question of us. He asks that question. And we, we might think we have all the time in the world, but we, we don't. Our life is but a breath. Our life is but a vapor. We, we, we could be t I could be hit by a bus tomorrow, for real. For real. Like it's an important question for us today not just for an ongoing journey with all the leisure time in the world. We don't have necessarily all the time in the world. That's not to make us fearful. That's not to, to somehow manipulate us to accept life with Jesus uh, out of fear or anything like that. But on, but on the more positive side, you know, if he's real, if he is real, if he is the one who knows his way through the wilderness, if he is the one uh, that has something to say about how we do our journey, if he is the one that can bring us life and hope and joy and peace and love, then why would you wait another moment to accept him? Why would you wait another moment? Why would you hold him at bay? He 
He's asking that question with some urgency and some sense of immediacy. And beyond just why we need to grapple with it, once we've grappled with it, we bring that questions to others by having grappled with it. That question that we've answered about who Jesus is then becomes a question to another person. Who is this person? Who is this Jesus? And so Peter sort of finally answers the question uh, from this place of the wilderness. From this place of the wilderness. Remember this place in the trees. Like honestly, Peter's realizing that he's in that place. He's realizing that he's in a scary place. He's realizing that he's in a place with an uncertain future. Uh, and, And he's saying to himself, I need the guy with the GPS. Right? I need the guy with a compass and, and maybe a can of bear spray. Right? I need that guy. Like, I need him in my life. And, and we do too. We need him in our lives. And our friends need him in our lives. And so the story goes on. Um, so, so he asks, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the son of of the living God. That first word we need to grapple with in, in Peter's answer is that, that idea that, that Peter recognized, wait a minute, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the one who saves me. You're the one who picks me up out of the darkness, out of the woods. You're the one I need. And, and in saying that and in admitting that, Peter is saying, he's confessing, he's confronted with the fact that he needs a Savior. Like, we need a savior. Uh, there's, a, there's a great, uh, uh, he, he's passed on now. Uh, he's a, a scholar and a writer uh, named David Foster Wallace. And in 2005, he did a speech uh, for Kenyon College uh, to a bunch of graduates. And he said this, he said, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's, uh, how's the water? And the, the two young fish swim on for a bit, and, and eventually one looks at the other and, and says, what the heck is water? Right, if you're in water, and if you're a fish, you don't know you're in water. And that's the state of our lives. That's the state of a world that doesn't know Jesus, is, is it's in sin, it's surrounded by sin, it's, it's immersed in sin, we're, we're drowning in sin, but we don't know it because it's all we know. But Peter, by saying, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, says, hey, wait a minute, I'm here, I'm in the water, I'm drowning, I need you. I need you, I, I need to get out of this water, I need to see the world in a different way. And so that's the first piece we've got to grapple with as we, as we grapple with who Jesus is, is we've got to recognize our context, recognize where we are, recognize our brokenness, recognize our need, and say, yeah, I need you, Jesus. I, I'm in the water. I need you to take me out. And so Simon Peter goes on. Uh, he says this. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Now, why is that phrase, that word living God, important? Remember, here we are in front of the temple of pan here we are in this incredible 
pagan place where the worship of the god Pan happens and the worship of all kinds of other Roman idols happens. If I'd shown another closer picture, there's just niche after niche after niche carved in that mountain with just pictures of idols and people would come to worship and they would make a sacrifice to this one and they would make a sacrifice to that one. And, and we're sort of in that condition as well that, that we are so prone to worshiping other things, aren't we? We're so prone to worshiping idols, and we don't have necessarily idols carved on the walls of our homes or, or niches built there, but we have all kinds of other idols. This person, uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, in, in this speech, and, and remember, this guy is an atheist, right? He is, he is not a believer. He is not a follower. But, but listen to what he says about the human condition. Here's, here's this guy. He says this. Here's something that's weird but true, and this is in his speech. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. This is an atheist speaking. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Yahweh or whoever, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexuality, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your fear. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid or fraud and always on the verge of being found out. He says this, he says, uh, talking again about the fish in the water, the most insidious thing about these forms of self-worship is not just that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. There, there are default settings. We are wired to worship something. We are wired to worship something. And we are going to find ourselves so unhappy if we worship our bodies because our bodies will ultimately fail and deteriorate and go. We, we will end up being disappointed with this thing. If we put our faith in this thing, uh, it's ultimately going to be buried. We have to grieve the loss of the thing that we worshipped. Our, our stuff, our money, our, our intellect, none of that is enough to have eternal value because we're wired to worship. We have to worship something else. And so wrestling with that, uh, Peter sort of says, uh, you know what? I worship the living God. I wor- you're the living God. You're not going to die. You're not going to fade away. You're not going to be buried. You're not going to leave me hanging. You're not going to be something I have to grieve in the end. I have potential for a life with you that goes forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. 
I'm worshiping life. And when we worship something that's alive, when we worship something that's living, when we worship something that's eternal, we get life back. We get life inside of ourselves. We get the gift of the Holy Spirit. We we get strength. We get power that's real and going to last forever. We can't worship these dead things like uh, what we see on our face when we get our makeup just right. We can't worship that image. We have to worship the God who's eternal. Simon Peter uh, goes on. He says this. He says, uh, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That word the is important. You know, he, he, he's making an exclusive claim here. When he says, I'm worshiping the living God, the son of the living God, uh, he's not just saying a living God. He's not just saying a son. He's not just saying uh, there's many, many ways that you can get to God. He's saying, I'm worshiping you. I'm acknowledging you. You are the way. We see it later in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus makes this exclusive claim about himself. But but why are these exclusive claims important? In this world where you can navigate and you can see a hundred gods to worship, that you have people telling you, you guys have heard it, especially you guys in high school, you've had people say to you, you know, you can just follow anything you want. You can go anywhere you want. You, whatever works for you, whatever's good for you, that's okay. That's great. Good for you. Good for you. It's all good, man. It's all good. Buddha's all good. Muhammad's all good. It's all good. But Peter's saying, no, you are the son of the living God. Why is that important? It's important because of that way that we're wired. We're wired to worship. We're wired to serve. Uh, Maybe a good illustration to help us understand that is to to understand dogs. How many of you have a dog? How many of you have a dog? Good for you. Dogs are awesome. Dogs are so much fun. When you go and visit your dog, when you come home from a long day at work, you might have forgot to feed him in the morning. Uh, You might have had to yell at him because he was chewing on your slipper or whatever it was. But when you get home to see that dog in the morning, he is going to be there waiting for you at the door, probably with a slipper or a sock. Our dog always brings a sock. She's just so happy to see you. She's always bringing me presents. She's such a great dog. Like, wow, you're so amazing. I'm so glad you came in. Her tail is wagging and wagging and wagging. She's so happy to see you. She wants to serve. A dog is where to serve. A dog is where to connect with his master in that way. How many of you have cats? Your cat is not waiting for you at the door. Your cat isn't. That's not where your cat is. Your cat is on the back of the couch, glaring at you. Where's my food? That's what your cat is like. Be the dog and not the cat. Be the dog and not the cat. That's who you're wired to be. That's why these exclusive claims about Jesus are important is because we're not designed to worship all of these other things. We're only designed to worship the one who made us, Yahweh. That's who we're made to worship and nothing else will make you truly happy. Nothing else will make you happy. You were made to worship him. The dog and not the cat. If, if you have a cat, you're a sinner. 
they're, they're idolatrous. They're terrible animals. They're terrible animals. Be the dog and not the cat. Sorry, cat lovers. So Jesus responds to this. Uh, Jesus responds to this declaration by Peter. And, and he says, he says, listen, blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you that you figured out that you need a savior. Blessed are you that you figured out that you need a savior. Blessed are you. You're blessed when you figure this out. You're blessed when you figure out that you were made to worship God. You're blessed when you figure out that you're made to worship a living God, not dead gods, not yourself. You're blessed. And he says, and, and just so you don't get confused that you didn't figure this out all by yourself. You know, you can't even worship yourself for figuring it out. Because the Holy Spirit revealed it to you. Before we, we, we said this, this sermon, before we shared this experience together, that my prayer has been that the Holy Spirit would reveal to some of us that, that you need this relationship with Jesus. And, and that's what Jesus says. You know what? Uh, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. And he goes on and he says, there, there's more to your story, Peter. It's not just about knowing this. Knowing this has a, an effect in your life. Knowing this has an effect in your life. He says this, he says, And I tell you that you are not Pe that you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. There's two words there uh, that are the same word, but slightly different words. Peter's name is Rock. And, and this is one of the most controversial passages in the history of the church because it's where our Roman Catholic friends look at Peter having this conversation with Jesus and see Jesus instituting for Peter uh, the, the first pope, instituting him as the first pope and saying that, that upon the foundation of who Peter is as a person, the whole church will be built. Uh, that's not what the passage says, in my opinion, in the opinion of a whole pile of other Protestants like me. Uh, <laughs> What the passage is saying, on this idea that you've acquired that I am the Savior, that I am the Son of the living God, on the rock of this idea, on the rock of this understanding, I will build my church. And they were standing right in front of a massive rock. And that's the definition. Petra, that larger word, rock, is, is a, a pile of boulders, a pile of stones that are, that are thrust out from the earth. Uh, when you see that word Petra used to describe another site in southern Jordan, wherever there's a big mound of rocks coming out of the earth, that's Petra. And it's on this rock, Petra, this massive rock, this massive understanding of you realizing that you need to worship me. It's on this understanding of Jesus as the son of the living God. That is the rock upon which the church is built. That is the foundational I ideology that he is God he is big and we are not that's the rock upon which the church is built that he is in control as Salome shared earlier and we are not that's the foundation of the church and he goes on he says this he says and the gates of hell will not overcome it 
This idea that I am Christ, the son of the living God, is the idea that these gates of hell that we're standing in front of, this place where people worship idols, that place, paganism, idolatry, confusion, will not overcome the rock that is the person of Jesus. And that's the foundation of the church. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell won't overcome the church that is built on that rock. Boy, church, we'd better be built on that rock. That Jesus is our head, that Jesus is our leader. We'd better be built on the rock of, of, of knowing that we're people that, that have to have a savior and have to worship him. And he goes on and says this, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, what do keys mean? The keys denote authority. When someone is given a key, how, how many of you ever wanted to just be given the key to the city of Carlton, placed by the mayor? Well, no, nah, it's not so much. <laughs> but given a key, do you remember? I, I remember when I first got my car key from my parents. When I first got a key to, I should have had a picture of it here. I had this ugly green Volvo station wagon. Do you remember that, that car? Do you remember wrapping it around the telephone pole, Amber? Okay, yeah, just, 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 just a side note. Just <laughs> Sorry. Yes, you helped fix it. Good girl. You know, we're given these keys, but w with that key comes authority, and with that key comes responsibility. So Jesus is saying, you have this key. I'm giving you this key, and with it, as a church, you as a church, you have some responsibility and authority that goes with that. Well, what's your responsibility? We have a responsibility to share the story. We have a responsibility to take up authority in our lives. Right? And that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes down to this idea of Jesus being our Savior and him being the Son of the living God. Is that he's given us responsibility as people. Now, is the church going to fulfill its responsibility if we just meet together on Sunday mornings? Does that key, do you leave that key, is there a bucket by that back door where you leave that key when you go home after church? There's something about our lives with Christ that means we're given authority to do something, authority to accomplish something. We, 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 we wonder why the church is powerless. We wonder why the church struggles. We wonder why it wrestles with so many things. And, and in so many ways, it's simply because we haven't taken up our authority because we haven't taken up the responsibility that Jesus has given us. Uh, he gives us this authority, but we, we're just trying all the time to give it back. <laughs> we're just trying to give it back all the time. Like, Jesus, I'm just going to pray about that. I really feel like we've got to deal with this situation and culture. Well, I'm just going to pray about it. And absolutely, prayer has to be a part of our journey. Uh, prayer and our relationship with God and listening to him absolutely has to be a part of the journey. But sometimes he's saying there's something you ought to do with what I've given you. There's an action that needs to be taken. There's an action that needs to be taken. He says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
Now, you've heard this passage uh, preached numerous times, especially if you have a charismatic background uh, like I do, where we think that that passage is about spiritual intercession. If we just pray and bind something in the heavens, then, then that problem will be bound on the earth. Isn't that what you've heard? Isn't that what you've sort of understood from that passage, having heard it before? Well, that's, that's not what it says there. It doesn't say whatever you bind by prayer in the heavens will be bound on earth. It doesn't say that. It says whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Do you want to bind a spirit of poverty in this area? Then give your money to the poor. Do you want to bind abuse of children? Yes, pray about it, absolutely. But protect kids. We're called to be people of action. And actually, if you look at it even, even more closely, you know, why, with this whole idea, when we say that word bind, don't you think of like handcuffs or ropes? And we've heard this preached so many times. If you bind something, you're, you're, you're tying it up, and if you lose something, you're, you're breaking those ropes, right? Isn't that sort of the, the language we've heard around this passage before? We're not talking about ropes in this context of this passage. We're talking about gates. Right? What does what the passage say? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now I give you the keys to the kingdom, not to the handcuffs of the kingdom, not to the ropes of the kingdom. I give you the keys to the gates of the kingdom. It's all about gates. It's all about keys. That's the context. So whenever you, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, whatever you lock up on earth will be locked in heaven. And whatever you unlock on earth will be unlocked in heaven. We're called to be people who by our actions, by taking up authority, by our deeds, by how we serve, by how we follow Jesus as the one who saves us, who is the son of the living God, by our actions, we unleash heaven. Absolutely, prayer is a part of it. But we're called to be people who take up our authority. We're called to unleash heaven. That's who we're made to be. That's who the church is made to be. Church, you are key holders. Church, you are key holders. By your works and your deeds, you bring forward the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples as he prepared them for the time when he was ultimately going to be gone from this earth because he was crucified on the cross. Saying, Peter, now it's up to you. Here's the keys. Don't give them back to me. They're, they're yours. They're your keys. Be a person. Be a man of action. Be a person who relates to me and who follows me. Sorry for the sound problem. I'm not sure what's going on. Unleash heaven. And you, church, have the authority to do that. Let's stand up.
know, the, to, another way to summarize this passage is to say that the more you release control, the more authority you're given. The more you admit that you need a savior, the more he calls you to follow in his way and to walk in his way and to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Oh, Lord. But for most of us, in this moment, it starts with this question. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Is he for you just a great teacher? Is he for you just a, a, a wise person, a wise leader, a historical figure? Or is he for you your savior and the son of the living God? So Father, we come before you now and, and I ask that you would come in your presence by your power. That you would come by your spirit. And would you personally in, in, in different areas of our lives, would you ask us this question? For those in this room who've been on the journey for a while who've been just wondering should I maybe finally give my life to you would they sense an urgency that it matters what they believe about you Holy Spirit would you come in your power For those of us who have been believers for a long time, we have so many rooms locked off, so many areas where we just haven't given you control. This is true of me. This is true of everyone in this space. Would you come to those rooms, to those areas in our lives and say again to us, who am I to you in this room? Who am I to you in this space? And as we answer that question, would you become Lord over our addictions? Would you become Lord over our bad habits? Would you become Lord over our areas of self-worship and idolatry? Would you become Lord over us when we're worshiping our bodies? Would you become Lord over us when we're worshiping money? Would you become Lord over us when we're worshiping our intellect? Whatever it may be, Lord, will you become Lord of our lives? For anyone in this room who needs to make this commitment to you for the first time, would you just show your love just show your love, Lord Jesus. Do you have an amazing journey for them?
as we relinquish our lives to you and you give us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Would we be people who just walk and follow you and just unleash heaven wherever we go? Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us swing wide the gates. Let us swing wide the gates by our words and our deeds. worship you, we praise you. In your holy name we pray, amen.